tonight we're looking beginning in verse 6 uh, through 19. Uh, I shared Sunday morning, Christ is first and foremost lifts up his hands and uh, his eyes to heaven and he's uh, praying to the Father. <clears throat> and I think that's absolutely critical. Uh, later on, he says he's saying these things out loud um, in their presence so that their joy might be made for or that his joy might be in them. So <clears throat> what they've heard <clears throat> at this point from Christ in his prayer to the Father uh, is, is necessary for their joy to be full. And so he turns his attention now from prayers to the Father, more directly uh, prayers to the Father on their behalf. He was praying on his own behalf uh, at first. So we'll pick up in verse 6. Uh, let me just read from verse 1 through 19, so we'll cover what we read Sunday. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I give, have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on the behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I, have also, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Uh, verse 20, he begins to expand that. Uh, as I shared Sunday morning, uh, when you... When, when you're hearing tonight what Jesus is praying for the disciples, for his disciples, I think initially he's praying specifically for the apostles. But there is, a, there is an extension of that to believers uh, through verse 20 because he says, uh, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So all of us to here tonight who have come to believe in Christ through the word of the apostles uh, are included in this prayer. <clears throat> now, the answer to the prayer 
I think is specific in the apostles' life because they were going to be specifically used by God essentially to lay down or to bring the truths of God by the Holy Spirit to bear. Uh, They are writing the inspired gospels. Well, that's not true of us. Uh, He's working in my life and he's working in your life and and we are saved the same way and everything is, is relative to what he says about the apostles. But I'm pretty sure that none of my writings could be considered as divinely inspired. Uh, They are not God-breathed. So there's a special application for the disciples, the apostles here, but it's an extended application to each of us who believe through their words. So I just wanted to share with you. uh, Remember now, in in all these verses, there are really essentially only three uh, direct requests in regards to the apostles. And I'll come back to them, but to name them up front, it is one, in verse 11, keep them in your name. The second one is keep them from the evil one, verse 15. And the third one is verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, which he says your word is true. So if you read through all those verses, that's essentially the three basic prayers that Jesus is praying. Everything else is sort of instructive in regards uh, to who he's talking about, uh, how he's already been ministering to them in his earthly life. And, and how he's turning over that, in a sense, to the Father now in, the, in his physical absence from them. So I just want to uh, look at several things here in regards to the, the persons that he prays for, for whom he prays. Uh, you see that, uh, as I mentioned, apostles specifically, but by extension, all of us. But I want you to notice first in, uh, in verse 6, the ones to whom Jesus manifested uh, was manifest, manifested the Father too. So that's who he's praying for. Verse 6, I have manifested your, to your, name, your name to the men you gave me. That's, he, now this is descriptive of who this prayer is for. He's already told us he's not praying for the world. So I want to know, well, who's the prayer for? Well, first and foremost, it's for the men to whom he manifested or revealed or made known the, the Father. In chapter 14, you'll remember uh, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but my Father abiding in me does his works. And then finally he says this, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. So his prayer here, or he's, the, he's identifying now who it is he's praying for as those whom he had revealed the Father to. Not only by the words he spoke, but also by his very presence. He says to Philip, look, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. He is the exact representation of God. He, he is the image of God, or he is, in the, he is the reflection of the glory of God. So when they looked at Christ, uh, he revealed to them the Father. That's who he's praying for. Now, certainly it's relevant in the apostle's life, but that's relevant in your life as well. Is he praying for you? Well, you ought to ask first and foremost, do I qualify as one in whom, uh, to whom Jesus has revealed the Father? <clears throat> Remember now, I've quoted all the time in 2 Corinthians 4, there's a problem that we're blind to that we don't recognize, which is we look at Christ, but we don't see in Christ the, the glory of God. 
We don't, we don't see in his face or in his countenance or in his presence the glory, the light of the glory of the gospel. So we, are, we can look at Jesus and be blinded to that. He's not praying for them. He's praying for those for whom that has been revealed, that has, the Father has been revealed in Christ. So that means he's praying for believers. First and foremost. So if you are in that category, this prayer is for you. It won't be answered the same way for you as it was for the apostles by, in regards to his specifics, but it will be answered in your life and has been answered in your life, in fact. So characteristic number one of who he's praying for, he's praying for those to whom the Father has been manifested by Christ. Notice he says here, I have manifested your name. He comes back to that later on, but I think that has the idea of I have manifested them to this, not only to you, but to the authority which you exercise in the universe, but certainly in my life, Jesus submitting to the Father. So I have introduced them to, and I have revealed to them your name. There is a name which is above every name. So it is not inconsistent for Jesus in the incarnation as the Son carrying out His mission to introduce them to the name of God or to, by the revelation of the Father, bring them under the authority or under the, under, into fellowship or set them apart unto God. I have introduced them to your name. And so it is in our lives as well. In verse 6 as well, another characteristics of the one the ones he's praying for is these are the ones given to him by the Father. They are given by the Father. Jesus has already said back in John 14 uh, in regards to those who come to God must come through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there's no way to the Father except through Jesus. But we know also that Jesus says that there is no way to the Son unless the Father draws him. So he's saying here, those whom I, to whom I have revealed or who have been, been made to see the Father in me and bring them under the Father's name. These are they which are given to me by the Father. I love this later on because he says, they were yours. They were yours. I didn't, I didn't pick them out. They were yours and you gave them to me. That's why when Jesus goes to the apostles and originally in calling of the disciples he says to them follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and he he calls them out but he's calling out the ones given to him by the father he's not they're not authorized by his call they're authorized by the father the father has ordained that they should be given to the son the son has come to receive that which the father has given him now if you're in that category this prayer's for you. That's who, that's who we are as believers. Yes, Jesus Christ reveals to us the Father, the glory of the Father. We look into the face of Christ. The veil is removed and we see Christ for the, in the glory that He is, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one God. We behold that and we embrace that and believe that. But we do so because we have been given by the Father to Him. Uh, this is one of the strongest arguments probably in Scripture for the doctrines of election and even predestination and foreknowledge and all those things John, uh, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. This is, this is ground zero for that doctrine. 
You have come to the Son and He has received you, but you have been given to Him by the Father. You were His. He gave you to the Son. The Son brings you back to the Father, having removed your sin or having washed away your sins and made you meet or made you qualified to come to the Father. And that's what He's saying here in John. Don't forget what they've just heard. I mean, Father, glorify the Son now that He may glorify you and return me to the glory I enjoyed with you before the world was. Return me to my eternally existing place in the triune Godhead. This is who is praying for them. And this one knows that those whom, who, who have seen the Father in Him are those whom the Father has given to Him to see that. Uh, one of the things about the doctrines of grace uh, that strike me so deeply is that they remove all occasion for boasting. You know what I mean? I mean, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And Paul says clearly, why? Lest you should boast. And so if you embrace the doctrines of grace, it removes from you boasting. You know down in the depths of your heart, there, there is no righteousness in you that would make you acceptable to an infinitely holy God. And so you are utterly helpless in your sins. But, I'm going to get to this later on, you're His. You're His. And He gives you to Christ to remedy that issue so that you might be brought to Him to whom you belong. That's God from first to last and full circle back around in your salvation. That is a glorious reality. So he's praying here for the ones given to him by the Father. Again in verse 6, he's praying for the ones in the world, but given out of the world. The Father gives him these who are in the world, but in the giving of them... It, from the world, he takes them out of the world. So he's praying for those who have been taken out of the world and given to the Son. He's not, he says later on, I'm not praying for the world because they are still in the world. This is not a prayer for the world. We pray for the world, I do. I don't know who the elect of God are. I don't know who belongs to God to, and whom he's giving to the Son at some point later in life by faith through, by grace through faith. I don't know who they are, so I preach to the world. I, I read one time that Charles Spurgeon, I think it was, said that uh, had God put a yellow stripe down the back of the elect, he wouldn't preach to anybody but them. Because he's certain that they will not come to the Son unless they are given to him by the Father. They don't, God doesn't do that. So Spurgeon preached to them all. And so you and I should fulfill the Great Commission and preach to all and to testify to the glory of God to all. Trusting that the ones to the Father will give to the Son will come through the instrument of the proclamation of the Word. That is the gospel. <laughs> that is the gospel. These were the ones that the Father had and given to the Son that were in the world. These are not angels come down. <laughs> These are not super, supercharged angels taking on human flesh, coming to the earth, and then God using them. God chose sinful men 
He had sinful men in the world, lost in their sins. And He chose them and He pulled them out of the world and put them into Christ. That's who He's praying for. That's who I am. I was in the world. I didn't come from some other planet. I didn't come from some, some divine atmosphere somewhere already perfected and just, just incarnated. I was born from my mother's womb in sin. I am a son of Adam. I was in the world, but I was his. And he gave me to his son. And when I was 29 years old, and, and I, at that point, he took me out of this world and put me in his son. Am I still physically in the world? Yes, but I am not of the world. You see the difference? Uh, the moment he gives you to the son... And the Son does His work that He's about to go do upon the cross. He brings you back to the Father and you are not of the world. We are pilgrims here. You know something, I, I thought about this. Sometimes I think we need to really drill down on the idea that we're pilgrims here. Because I think one of the problems we have is we've gotten way too comfortable in this world. There are a lot of accommodations there are a lot of comforts and a lot of luxuries that we have learned to enjoy. In fact, we've come to the place that we think we can't do without those. We are not of this world. We have far more comfort than the world can ever offer us. If it offers us every pleasure and we don't have God, we are of all men most to be pitied. But if He takes it all the world from us and gives us Himself, we are of all men most to be admired and to rejoice over. We're, we're pilgrims in this world. Hebrews says if they had been looking for a city here, they'd have found one. But they, as it were, by faith, they were looking for a city whose maker is God, not man. That's, that's the pilgrim mentality. Someone I can't remember... But I remember the quote, but I don't remember who said it. But he said, our problem is not that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Our problem is we need to be more heavenly minded so that we can be of any earthly good. We're the opposite. We're earthly minded and hope to do some heavenly good. We're too comfortable in this world sometimes, I think, myself included. He gives us to Christ out of the world. Verse 6, again, coming, kind of coming back to the first one, the ones given to him by the Father. In verse 6 again, he says, I've manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. Here he says it. They were yours, and you gave them to me. They were yours, and you gave them to me. Well, I thought about this. When was I his? Because as of yet, Christ has not yet come to the cross. And so if they're... If they only become gods by believing in Christ, then they're not technically yet His. But John says, I'm praying for them. You gave them to me out of the world, and they are yours. You gave me yours out of the world. Now, think about this for a moment. Did God possess you and give you to something lesser than Himself when He gave you to Christ? Or did he give you to himself in Christ, who is God? Now, I thought about this. Well, when, was, when did I become his? Well, 
Ephesians says we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Well, if I'm chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, I must have been God's before then, or at least at that point. And before I had any biological substance in my mother's womb, I belong to God. In fact, when He brought me into this world through my mother's womb, in the circumstances in which He brought me into this world, I was His. And all eternity past and all eternity forward, was, it was certain that at some point in His wisdom and in His timing, He would give me to His Son to redeem me and make me fit to be brought to the one to whom I belonged. If you're a believer tonight, that's what's happened in your life. Now, I understand that we describe that anthropomorphically, we, we put that in our words and we say that in words that feel right to us and others hear those expressions. I heard it yesterday. I heard a, a champion for free will and I didn't engage in the conversation because the context was, was not suitable for that conversation. But, but I kept wanting to ask him, would you define free for me? Because as far as I can tell, the only thing I was free to do in, my, in the bondage sin had me in was to choose sinfulness. I was free to do that. In fact, I was not restricted whatsoever with righteousness. Righteousness wasn't keeping me in my own heart from doing evil. All that I ever chose to do by my will was only evil and rebellion against God. He overthrew my will. And literally freed me in that moment by the cross to choose him of my own free will. Although the choosing is rooted in his choice of me and it is of you as well. That's a glorious doctrine. Uh, I, 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 I never, I, I'm always amazed at why that seems offensive to people. Because to me that is the foundation of my security. Because if I, if I have some input in this, if it's a dual covenant, which I do my part and he does his part, then I'm sure to lose this thing. Because I'm not going to get my part accomplished. He can do his part, but if he leaves it to me, I'm not going to fulfill my part of it. And on that basis, I would be lost. It is a covenant relationship, but it was a covenant by, made by God with himself, who, in whom there is no error or no failing in honoring his own covenant. And, the, and you are united to Christ by the covenant of God himself, therefore forever secure. You're his. If you're in that category, this prayer is for you. This is a prayer for you. This, you can hear this as Christ praying for you. You were the one belonging to the Father. In verse 7, another category here is, these are the ones who know that all is Christ, all that is Christ, Christ apostrophe S, comes from the Father. I think that has the idea of they've understood or at least grasped his oneness with the Father. He says, now they have come to know or they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. By the way, I'm coming back to verse 6, keeping a word. But now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. So now they've, 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 God now, this, light, this veil has been removed. They've seen the light of the glory of the gospel. They've seen the, 
glory of God in the face of Christ and they've made that connection. They, they have this understanding that this is not, this is not a human in the fullest sense or in, the, in some other sense of the word. This is not an apparition. That is, this is, in fact, God incarnate. They have understood that everything I have, all that is pertaining of me, comes from you. It is deity poured out, or it is deity just the same in me as in the Father. And I think what's indicated here is they have understood the deity of Christ. They have understood who He is. In verse 8, The ones he's praying for are the ones to whom the word is given and received. Again, in verse 6, he says, They have kept your word, verse 8, For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So the description of those for whom he prays are those to whom he has given his word, they have received his word, and they have kept his word. Give, receive, keep. The ideal here is the divine revelation of it. Jesus gave them the word. They received the word, having divine, been made divinely capable of that through his revealing of the Father. And having been given the word and receiving the word, they kept the word. They obeyed the word. These are the ones for whom he's praying. Now, if you say, I, re- I received the word, and say, but I don't worry too much about keeping the word, then you might question whether or not this prayer is for you. Or if you th- come up with your own word, and you didn't receive the word of God, and you didn't receive it as the word of God, nor have you obeyed it, then the prayer is not for you. There are many in the world today who profess themselves to be Christian and they will even open their Bibles. But it is not the divine Word of God understood and illuminated by the Spirit of God dwelling within and their desire and their their pursuit of obeying that Word is completely absent. So no matter what they profess and no matter what book they have open, if it isn't received given, received, and obeyed or kept, then they have no right to think that this prayer is for them. Now, as those who are belong to God and who may someday be given to Christ, yes, it will be for them, but they will be able to make that claim in the day that they come to know Christ. But right now, they can't make that claim. You and I can. In fact, I remember in my, in my conversion... And in the process of that, the, the order you can get into, but in the regeneration and all that, all that followed those things, I remember distinctly in those moments of despair and just, just really crying out to God because I didn't know I was agnostic at best. He, he, may, he may exist. In fact, people give testimony and it sounds convincing and there are things in the universe that are unexplainable to me and that would only be explained by a God who brought them into existence. But, but I, I don't know that with certainty. I don't, I don't know that. So there, there's no knowledge. There's, I'm agnostic. And so in those moments, I, I said, God, if, if you exist and if it's possible that I might know you, would you reveal yourself to me? 
And immediately in my heart came the thought, read the word. That's all that came. He didn't say go to church. He didn't say call your mom. He didn't, go, he didn't say go find a Christian somewhere and have them testify to you. The import, the import. The compulsion in my heart at that moment was to get a Bible, start at the beginning, and read it. And I did. You can ask Hope. Every evening after work, supper time's over, I sit down in the recliner, open my Bible, and read sometimes till 3 and 4 in the morning, went to bed, got up at 6 the next day, did the same thing. And in three months, I had completed the Scriptures. And God showed up. Read the Word. The Word was given to me in that moment. And in the same divine operation, the Word was given to me in such a way as was confirming and undeniably true. Therefore, I received the Word. And having received the Word, I felt the urgency of obeying the Word. And I feel it to this day, not to say that I or you or any Christian has perfectly obeyed, but there is a recognition that it ought to be obeyed, for it is the Word of God. If you're in that camp, this prayer's for you. This prayer's for you. In fact, if He doesn't pray this for you, we're, we're going to have a whole lot of trouble getting home. And I think the reason he's praying it out loud in their hearing is that they might know whenever these things are challenged in their life, they might recall to this prayer. I am His. I belong to the Father. He has given me to the Son. And the Son has, is now in this prayer turning over me back to the Father, having accomplished the mission for which He had come in this earth. And the Holy Spirit is coming third person of the Trinity to take up residence in my life and in my heart and guaranteeing that I get home. That's the prayer they'd need to remember very shortly, by the way. There's a, there's a big difference. You ever think about this? Judas wasn't here to hear this. Peter was. Both, one betrayed and the other denied Christ. One took his own life in some fleshly effort to, re, to undo the deed that he had done and the other one was brought back into fellowship with Christ. Could it be that this was the prayer? Could it be that the difference between Judas, in some ways the difference between Judas and Peter was that one was present for this prayer and one was not present? It may have weighed into that. We know later on Jesus says that the reason Judas was lost is because he was the son of destruction. He was the son of perdition. He was ordained that he should be the one who betrays Christ. So ultimately, he was not chosen in the sense that the other apostles was by God. He wasn't God's. He wasn't God's. They were. So Jesus is praying for the ones to whom the word is given and received. In verse 8. Part of that word, I believe, and part of living with Christ in general was he's praying for the ones who understood and believed that the Son was sent by the Father, that he is of the Father. Verse 8, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them. And truly, through this word, I think he means here, through his word and through his presence, and they truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed. Through the word. They truly understood and they believed through the word 
that you sent me. These are the ones whom he's praying for. And if you're in that category as well, through the word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through having been given to him by God the Father who, to whom you belonged, and having given you the word and having made possible you receiving the word and having motivated your obedience to the word, have you come to the true understanding that Jesus Christ was sent from God? He's not, a, he's not a prophet. He's not a teacher. He's not a wise man. He's not a sage in his generation. He has come forth from the Father. That was the very testimony of God, of the Father, at the baptism of Christ. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I mean, He has come down from the Father. You believe that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to the grace and the and the, the elections of God and through Jesus Christ Himself. But it has all brought you to that understanding. I think that's the big hurdle in the world. They look at Christ and they read of the historical Christ. And immediately, I had someone give me a book years ago, and they were really excited about it. It was a wonderful exposition of the life of Christ. And I read two chapters in it, closed it, and have never opened it again. And wouldn't dare give it away. If I was prone to burn books, I'd probably burn it, but I'm not prone to do that. So it's on my shelf at home, and I hope my grandkids never come across that and think I, I liked it. In fact, I think on the front page, I kept this to show how dangerous doctrine, er, doctrinal error is because it was a complete disregard for the deity of Christ. They, they viewed Christ simply as a prophet come from God who showed us the wise way to live and demonstrated to us how we ought to love the world. He is much more than that, as he has just indicated in his prayer to the Father on his own behalf. If you're here tonight and you're one who has understood and believed that Jesus Christ has truly come forth from the Father, you're in the category of those for whom he's praying tonight. In verse 9, it indicates here that the ones for whom he prays, I just used my own words here, were the elect. He says, verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. There's a distinction there. But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He says it again. I'm not praying for the world here. I'm praying specifically on behalf of the ones you gave me which were yours. They were yours before you gave them to me. <laughs> they were yours, you gave them to me. And I, as I've already said, I am going to the cross to make, make a way so that they might come through me back to you to whom they belong. That is the elect of God. So I remember hearing an old country preacher contesting the doctrine of election. He said, I didn't even know I was up for a vote. Uh, played it off that way. What he simply means here is that you belonged to God. And you belonged to God when you were in your sins and in the world. And God, by His grace, called you out of the sins. The one who belongs to Him called you out of this world and put you into Christ and thereby removed you from the world and you will never be of the world again. 
And your, and your life you're living now as a Christian is the process of Him crushing out a love for the world in the old man and creating in you a love for the new kingdom in the heart of the believer. That's what sanctification essentially is. You hear me quote it all the time. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. I don't know yet what I'm going to be. I'm personalizing this. But I know this thing. When I see Christ, I will be like Him. And to me, it's always said to me that the catalyst for me becoming like Christ is seeing Christ more fully. The reason I'm not more Christ-like today is because I don't see Him fully as fully as I should. If I want to be more like Christ, I have to pursue and by the grace of God and through the truth of God's Word, behold Christ more clearly and fully. And, as, and perceiving that, the effect will be that I will begin to resemble that which I see. All the way through this life until the moment when finally this sinful flesh is put off for good and I behold Christ without the obstructions of blinded eyes and sinfulness and I will see Him glorious as He is. And so glorious will that sight be and powerful that in a moment the transformation will happen. I will be like Christ to the glory of God to whom I belong. This is just, it comes full circle. John is praying some awesome things here, but he's not only praying. Remember, he's just prayed three things. All this is explanatory of how he can pray and the certainty of the answer to that prayer. It's absolutely critical to their understanding that. There's probably more in those passages, but I return in closing to the three requests. On the basis of all that he said here, his prayer for me and for you, specific to the apostles and specific to the people who would believe through their words. He's praying this for you. Father, keep them in your name. Again, by the keeping them in the name means consecrated, set apart unto you. Uh, the implication for me is that if it's left to them, they won't be able to do that. In fact, in a, in a few hours, I'm going to be arrested and taken away for crucifixion. And so afraid are they going to be that they're going to flee like sheep scattered. And in that moment, they will not be able to keep themselves in your name. He says later, while I was then with them, I was keeping them in your name. <laughs> They didn't abandon you because I was physically present. But I'm about to leave them, go to the cross, and ascend to the Father. And their thoughts are that I won't be with them to keep them in your name. So in the presence of His disciples, He's essentially turning over the keeping from Himself to the Father. Father, keep them in your name. Or if you're in the name of God tonight, if you're in the name of the Father tonight, you have been kept by the Father. Now, does the Father work through your desires and through your Bible study and through your prayer and through sustaining you through temptations? Absolutely. But the decisive reality in that is that He is keeping you. The little, the little image we see of the footprints in the sand thing, that's true. Those are not your footprints. Those are His you're not walking along looking ahead by your own strength and by your own resolve and disciplined character following on through the heartaches to meet the Lord. It is the Lord Himself carrying you through those days. He is keeping you in His name. 
Let me say this. Are you not glad that Jesus prayed that way? How many times would you have abandoned Christ already in your Christian life? I've been a Christian since I was 29 years old. I, I, I can't even count the occasions where things got difficult and had I been relying upon my own perseverance and I, my own sense of self-discipline, which I have very little of, there is no way this flesh would have walked the difficult road with Christ unless the Father was keeping me. And I submit to you, neither would you unless the Father's keeping you. Jesus says this in the hearing of his disciples and how that must have come back to them at trying times. Most of them died as martyrs, perhaps with the exception of John who died, on, or who died of old age, I understand. But imagine that this came back to them whenever the, whenever the death sentence came down and they were about to give their lives and they'd watch the other saints give their lives already and they know the brutality of it and the cruelty of it all and how the waves of the flesh might have rolled over them and they felt that moment of fear. But then they remembered this high priestly prayer and Jesus said to the Father, Father, keep them. And the Father kept them. Even through death, He kept them. That's his prayer for you. I don't know what you're going through, and you don't know what I'm going through every moment of every day. But some days it gets overwhelming, doesn't it? Sometimes circumstantially it gets overwhelming. Sometimes for me the far more overwhelming battles are the ones fought within. What I've been talking about on Sunday night, when the light of God's truth shines in there and it shows some rotten place in your heart that you thought was long ago healed and made healthy, and it's despairing, almost overwhelming in that moment because you think to yourself and you're so ashamed and you say, oh God, I, I, I thought my life was yielded over fully to you and now you're shining places that I've held in reserve for myself. Oh God, forgive me in those moments. And I would not be kept in those moments by my own. And just out of sheer self-disappointment and despair, I would walk away from Christ because it's just too hard. It's just too hard. But he keeps me. And he's kept you. And he will keep you. And that's exactly what Jesus is praying. Verse 15, the second prayer, keep them, keep them from the evil one. Same phrasing here, the keeping part from the evil one is to the Father. Now we know that sometimes the Father will extend the leash of the evil one so that he might come against us as an instrument to crush out self-reliance in us. But even in that is the keeping. He says that to Peter. In fact, Jesus tells Peter before the denial, Satan has desired to sift you, but I have prayed for you. The implication is, I've decided to let him. <laughs> now that's not something you want to hear. But the hope in that is that I have prayed for you and when you return. So the promise is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you ever into the realms of Satan who is leashed. I'm going to subject you to his assaults and, and, it's gonna, and you're going to fall to those. But I have prayed and your faith will hold and you will come back to me. So it is necessary, Peter, 
by God's sovereign will that the instrumentality of Satan himself will be necessary to push out of you all self-reliance and let your boldness rest wholly in the truth of God's word and in Christ. Because Peter, I think, of all the disciples would have been most likely to, to operate in his own strength. If all others deny you, not me. I mean, Peter would be the mo one most likely to depend on himself. And so it may have been so entrenched in the character of Peter that the Lord allowed Satan himself to assault him to crush out that self-dependence. Now the bold Peter wouldn't even admit he knew Christ in front of a little servant girl, intimidated by a little girl. You were one of them, weren't you? I don't know the man. But boy, he knew him afterwards. In fact, tradition says Peter refused to be crucified upright because it was too close to Christ, but rather chose to be crucified inverted so as not to compare himself to the Christ. He was fully dependent upon Christ. Jesus prays for them, keep them from the evil one. You ever, you ever think about just how Satan would ravage you? spiritually and in every other way if he was given free reign to come into your life at will as a believer you wouldn't last another second because the worst thing he can possibly do is let a believer live another moment in order to share the truth of God with someone else he would silence you immediately. Or better, he would press you down so far that you would publicly stand up and deny everything you've ever said you believed about Jesus Christ. You would curse God to his face were you given over wholly into the devil's hands. But Jesus prayed that the Father would keep us from that. As I said, don't assume that he won't... He won't allow Satan to be, be instrumental in some way and even evil in the world to be instrumental in your sanctification. But you are never turned over fully to Satan. Job himself was a righteous man by God's own testimony. And the devil even acknowledged it but then said, oh yeah, of course he is. He's had every blessing in life. You've hedged him about. You've made him prosperous. Take away some of those things and he'll curse you to your face. And it is a testimony to Job that in all the suffering, he refused to curse God. In fact, his conclusion was the Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. Praise be to the Lord. Kept from the evil one. And the final one, verse 17, is his prayer for his disciples and his apostles and us. Is he requested the Father that he sanctify them in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's his prayer for us. So our sanctification has been prayed for by God and through the instrument of the word of God. That is the, that is the sanctification. That's why if you, if you find someone professing Christianity, professing Christ, and they have a closed Bible that stays in the back window of their car and collects dust and is never opened, then they are not, they are removing, even if they are believers, which I would doubt, but they are removing the primary instrument for your sanctification, for your transformation and conformity to the image of Christ. It is the Word. It is the Word. It's amazing to me, but and, and you may find yourself, sometimes the Bible is difficult to understand. And I, me and Brother Travis was talking, but I said, 
when I study the scriptures, I try to restrain myself from looking anywhere but the Bible. And I, and, I, and I drill and I labor and I sometimes get frustrated and even get up and walk away trying to understand what this means. And I'm cross-referencing and I'm using a concordance maybe to look up different references. But I, I try my best not to leave the Scriptures until I feel as though the Scriptures have become clear for me. And then and only then will I sometimes consult or not sometimes, but most of the time, consult a trusted commentator to see if I'm anywhere in the ballpark. If I'm way off, he's probably right. But, but sometimes I'm seeing things in a nuanced way that my trusted commentator didn't see, and, but they're consistent with what he does see. And in those moments, it confirms to me that the Lord has given me understanding in that moment to that facet. And so, and so it becomes mine in, in some ways. And so I preach it as though I have come to know it. I can't preach Calvin. I can't preach Matthew Henry. If I was going to do that, I could just bring it and just read from it. There's much to learn from them, and you'd, you'd benefit from hearing Calvin or Matthew Henry or, or others read. But, but you could do that. Anybody could do that. I'm not called to be Matthew Henry or John Calvin. But I'm called to be the humble, broken vessel, broken pot through which God might communicate some truth. And that's what you and all of us are called for. My sanctification has happened and is happening and will continue to happen until I see Christ through the Word of God. And so will yours. I love, I love the authors that I read and those, those who are helpful to me so much so in my Christian life. But there is, no, there is no promise here by Christ that the writings of John Piper or John MacArthur or Beth Moore or anybody else will be the instrument by which I am sanctified. The promise here is the Word of God. And insofar as Piper, MacArthur, and Beth Moore are in agreement with the Word of God, then they might be used instrumentally in some way. But the ground of that is the truth of God's Word. Christians, we must be in the Word. Otherwise, we're, we're making no progress in the faith and no progress towards Christ-likeness in this life. And, and by that, we are limited in our witness to this world. Uh, what does the world see in us that they can't find somewhere else? Uh, the Word is critical to that. So this is Christ's prayer for you and I tonight. He's keeping us in His name. He's keeping us from the evil one, and He's sanctifying us through His Word. Without that, with that hope... I think we can endure whatever his providence allows in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Indeed, there is much of the flesh remaining in us. But Lord, I thank you that the promise of Christ and the prayer of Christ here was that we would be kept by you. And Father, I know that that keeping will manifest itself, the reality of it, in our life more devoted to you each day and so father help us to evaluate as we shared sunday night to examine ourselves as to whether we're in the faith but father convinced that we are we thank you that you have assured that we'll get home 
We thank you for the testimony of so many who have gone before us who were faithful throughout their years and faithful through their days, and we are confident that they were home, but not because they were wonderful people or, or super Christians or even faithful, but because you kept them. And Father, I thank you that you will keep us as well. Thank you for Christ. Even in this prayer, the cross is yet ahead of him. And Lord, he, he, I think he understood that all that he is requesting here would be granted upon the sacrifice of the cross, the merit of the sufferings of Christ. It was assured that his suffering would be sufficient to purchase a mercy for us that would bring these truths to pass in our lives. Thank you for that great grace. For it's in his name and his glory we pray.